Let us pray. May your spirit grow us in courage and hope as we face the fears that confront us in our daily lives. Hold me up, God, that I might lift you up. Amen. Hear now God's word to Israel through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. And then these words, written by David, a shepherd boy, who later became king of the Israelites, writing in a moment of great fear. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust. I am not afraid. What can flesh do to me? This is the word of God. The Age of Anxiety was a book-length poem written by W.H. Auden and published in 1947. The poem captured American culture during the Second World War so well that it won the Pulitzer Prize. The 40s and 50s were an age of anxiety. I know that my grandparents would say so. They'd lived through the Great Depression, only to experience World War II, followed by the Cold War, economic insecurity, working from sunup to sundown to barely feed their children and keep a roof over their heads, constant worry over those who were fighting in the war and concern over who might be called next, wondering if the hostilities between the U.S.-led Western powers and the Soviet bloc countries would reach a boiling point, Yes, the society that Auden addressed was living in an age of anxiety. But the age of anxiety? I mean, what about today's society? I'd say that we live in an age of anxiety. Maybe even a, high, a level of high anxiety. Today we begin a six-week worship series based on Adam Hamilton's book, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It's a good book relevant, because we do live in an age of high anxiety. I mean, Lord have mercy. Society changes so fast. So much happens in a single news cycle. It makes your head spin. And we hear about all of it. I mean, I have all these apps on my phone. I have news apps and weather apps and financial apps. I had to turn all the notifications off before I had a nervous breakdown. I mean, the number of times that the phone would ding or that my fitness watch would vibrate throughout the day, I mean, it was sending me over the edge. Bing, another school shooting. Bing, a terrorist attack. Bing, the market's down 200 points. Bing, North Korea has tested their long-range nuclear missile. Bing, a wildfire, or a hurricane, or an earthquake, somewhere in the world. And then we have our personal worries, right? We worry about relationships, we worry about our children, our health, our work, 
You want to know what stresses me out? Adam Hamilton and I actually have this in common. You. You stress me out. I mean, have all the people in our community who are hurting, have they been cared for? How are we going to connect with our community? How are we going to reach people? Have we collected enough in pledged giving that we can support all the ministries that God is calling us to? How's the denomination going to fare in this upcoming called special general conference? And how's it going to affect our congregation? Oh, and every week there is this ball of anxiety that begins to form in my gut. And it just grows more and more and more intense the closer Sunday draws. Will I be ready? Will what I have to say matter? Will I say it well enough? Will people be uh, touched by God in worship this week? Will they experience God's grace? Will y'all be inspired? Will you be transformed, touched? Will anybody be here? <laughs> I have this anxiety dream. I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I have these dreams. And I show up for worship, and I'm the only one here. I had this one particular dream where I showed up and all the pews had been removed except for this section over here. And they were barely half full. Y'all, come to church. Better yet, be here on time. Your pastor's sanity depends upon it. Okay, so I'm just dipping into Jesus' playbook a little bit and using a little bit of hyperbole. I don't want to exaggerate it too much because I'm also having a blast. I love being your pastor. You are such an amazing community of faith. But you have your stresses just like I do. Stresses related to your job maybe or your family or maybe it's the stress of not having a family and really wanting one. Maybe it's health or financial concerns. The truth is, every age has its own anxieties. I mean, just look at the Bible. Scripture addresses fear more than 400 times. Clearly, people have been experiencing anxiety since the beginning of time. In fact, the truth is, fear is not always a bad thing. It's actually a gift. It's some, there are some things that are known as healthy fears. Fears of rattlesnakes, for example. Fear is this instinct that's giving to, given to us as a gift to keep us safe. It's built into our physiology. So deep in our reptilian brain, there's the instinct center, and there is the amygdala. Now, the amygdala is constantly monitoring input from all of your senses. What are you seeing? What are you hearing, smelling, touching, feeling? And if the amygdala perceives a threat, there's this flood of chemicals that are released into your system, which trigger a series of cascading physiological effects. Your pupils dilate, you get tunnel vision, your blood pressure rises, your heart rate, in heart rate increases, your breathing becomes rapid. You may react to a perceived threat before you even fully realize what it is that you're responding to. Years ago, Zay was two or three years old. We were out in Santa Fe visiting my mother. And all of us, my mom, 
Michaela Zay, me, we were all in my mother's office slash gym, hanging out. I was on the treadmill, walking. Michaela and Zay were sitting on the floor. They were playing this new video game that they had gotten that was connected up to the TV. My mom was standing behind them drinking her coffee. Well, Michaela and Zay were trying to figure out which option to pick in the game next. So Zay stood up. She was going to walk over to the television to point at the option she wanted. Well, she tripped over the cords and suddenly went barreling head first straight for this table, this skinny little sofa table upon which the television and this ancient, very heavy metal typewriter were precariously perched. She couldn't stop herself. She just started uh, shouting, no, 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 no. It was one of those moments when everything stands still. Suddenly, we were in slow motion. I guess it was because all my peripheral vision was gone. I was completely hyper-focused on what was happening. In the exact same moment, my mother threw her coffee over her shoulder as she lunged forward to try and get Zay. I somehow ripped the headphones off my head and launched off of a moving treadmill. Michaela popped up and all of us in this instant, purely driven by instinct, were grabbing for Zay. My heart still races every time I think about that. All I had in my head was this image of Zay going under that table, it tipping and that typewriter landing on her head. Well, she did, go under the, she did go under the table, and it tipped the table, and the TV, table, typewriter, and Zay, they all hit the floor. By God's grace, the only injury was to her foot, upon which the table was laying. None of us got there fast enough to catch Zay, but I guarantee you our amygdalas were working just fine. This early warning system that's built into our brains, I mean, it's a gift. It's a gift that's meant to keep us safe. It's meant to give us extra energy and speed and reflexes and strength so that we can respond quickly to a perceived threat. It's called the fight or flight response because most often we do one of those two things. And when the threat's real, it's a very good thing. The problem is that sometimes the amygdala sounds the alarm when there isn't really anything to be afraid of. Those hormones, they get dumped into your system, your breathing gets shallow, your heart races, and we're not sure why. In fact, 57 million, that's one in every five or six people in the United States, suffer from anxiety disorder or panic attacks as a result of these false alarms. False alarms that are sometimes caused by our own overactive imaginations. Our imaginations can take a potential threat that we perceive based on all this input all the time, things that we're hearing on the news, the worries of our daily lives, and we magnify them. We can catastrophize our worries. We hear that the market has plummeted and we immediately imagine another depression. There's a strange bump that appears behind your ear. So naturally you Google it only to learn that you likely have an advanced and fatal form of cancer. I know that ever since 9-11, whenever I get on a plane, I think through what I'm going to do if we get hijacked. 
When there's a tornado watch and Michaela and Zay are at school and I'm watching the news, I get terrified and I feel so helpless. And now, thank you very much, school shooters. We get at least a couple of lockdown alerts each semester. And I sit there watching my phone, holding my breath and praying until eventually we get another alert telling us that it was a false alarm. Well, of course, by then, all of those chemicals have already flooded my system. I'm a complete wreck. Michaela drives now. That's all. <laughs> Adam Hamilton uses an acronym to describe this phenomenon. When our fears get magnified, this is what happens. False events appear real. So here's the deal. There are some things that we need to be afraid of. I mean, there are times when we need to be able to react quickly to protect ourselves or to protect other people. But when we let generalized anxiety or our exaggerated fears run unchecked, when our imaginations begin to catastrophize every perceived threat, it can seriously diminish our lives. It can keep us from pursuing our passion, from pursuing our purpose. My grandmother Carpenter, in her later years, she was filled with anxiety. She worried so much. She would sit around and imagine all of the things that could possibly go wrong. She got to the point where she didn't want to leave her house, and more often than not, she didn't. Anxiety, fear, magnified by her, by her overactive imagination, it seriously affected her ability to live fully and freely. So what do we do about it? How do we live unafraid with courage and hope? Well, during this series, each week we're going to examine a different type of fear, and we're also going to look at um, what the therapeutic field has to offer us in terms of tools and we'll reflect on what scripture has to say about it and we'll learn some spiritual practices that might help us with it. Counselors and psychologists, psychiatrists, they can be very helpful. They have a lot of tools that they can share with us to help us deal with fear and anxiety. Many of them are tools that have been around for a long time but we've just forgotten about them or we have a hard time bringing them to mind in times of high anxiety. One tool that a therapist will recommend is exposure therapy, which is just a fancy way of saying face your fear. Sometimes that is the only way to move beyond what you are most afraid of is to confront it. You do what terrifies you, hopefully you survive, and you realize it's not that bad. When I was in my teens and early 20s, I was painfully shy when it came to boys. Terrified. If I liked a boy, I literally became paralyzed in their presence. You know, the two most common fear responses are fight or flight, but there is freeze. That was me when it came to guys. Seriously, my very first boyfriend that I ever had when I was 13 years old, I think the only word I ever said to him was when he asked me if I'd be his girlfriend, and I said, okay. 
For the next three weeks, I would dodge him in the hallway. I'd avert my eyes. I didn't say anything to him until finally he passed me a note going down the hallway one day, breaking up with me. <laughs> I became mute. I was physically awkward. My heart would pound. I felt like I couldn't breathe. It was so humiliating and debilitating. My senior year of college, there was this guy. I thought he was so cute. And the worst possible thing happened. He noticed me. And he thought I was cute too, and he asked me out. I thought I would die. By the time our first date was over, I was absolutely certain that I would never hear from this guy again. I was like a deer in headlights all night long. Miracle of miracles, he asked me out again, and for some weird reason, again after that, I thought, this is so weird. <laughs> but I really liked him, and I didn't want to blow it. So I finally made up my mind that I was going to face this fear. I didn't care how much I shook. I remember it so clearly. I was at his parents' house, and I was sitting on the washing machine, which was in their kitchen as he was preparing something to eat. And before I could stop myself, I just blurted out, there's something I want to tell you. He was probably shocked to hear me say anything. He stopped, <laughs> turned around, looked at me. My heart was pounding. My hands were shaking. I think I was on the verge of tears. I said to him, I like you a lot. I couldn't breathe. <laughs> and when I like someone, it scares me. And I don't know what to say. I, I don't know how to act. I don't know what to do. But I don't want you to think that because I'm quiet, it means that I don't like you because I do. I like you. I like you a lot. I can't believe I didn't pass out. I'm glad I was sitting down. And I didn't die. And he still liked me. And that ended up being the first real relationship I ever had. And it was so much fun. Wrestling with fear is not new. I've mentioned it many times before, and I'll say it again. The most often repeated phrase in the Bible is, do not be afraid. Clearly, people have struggled with fear since the beginning of time. And a faithful response to fear, as witnessed in the Bible, is to turn to God. David was a shepherd who later became king of the Israelites, but in his earlier years, Saul was king. And King Saul suffered from mental illness, and this mental illness caused him to become insanely jealous of David. So jealous, in fact, that he finally determined that he had to kill him. He needed to eliminate David. Well, David figured this out. He realized what was coming, and he had a very healthy flight response, ran to hide in the caves of En Gedi. Well, Saul sent his military after him. They were hunting him down. Saul was serious. David was terrified. So he began to do what he often did. He began to write. He write a poem, wrote a poem and he set it to, song, uh, to music and it became a song. It's Psalm 56, the one that we read just a little while ago. And then he began to sing it to God. He would sing, whenever I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And when I put my trust in you, what can flesh do to me? 
Adam Hamilton says that he often sings to God, that that gives him peace when he's afraid. I do not sing to God. I think God might smite me. <laughs> David reminded himself through his song that he belonged to God and he reminded himself that this God that he belonged to could be trusted. I often think that fear begins when we forget who we are. We forget that we are created by this amazing God who is always with us. We hear do not be afraid more often than anything else in the Bible and most often that phrase is coupled with another. Because I am with you. These words are most often on the lips of God as they are in Isaiah 41. Do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Another tool is to pray scripture. Scripture that reminds us that we belong to God and that the God that we belong to is worthy. This God is powerful and mighty and full of grace. We practice this during the prayers of the people. You can take a scripture like Isaiah 41.10 and you can pray it. You can personalize it even. You can say, God, I am afraid. But you are my God. You are my God. And even though I'm terrified, even though I feel ill-equipped, even though I feel completely insufficient, even though I'm shaken in my shoes, God, I will not be afraid because I know that you will strengthen me. I know that you'll give me the things I need to meet this fear. I know that you have me in your grasp and that you will not let go. And as we pray, we remember we put our imaginations to a much better use. We don't magnify our fears, we magnify God. And God's mercy and God's provision and God's steadfast love. And then we begin to believe. We begin to believe what it is that God says to us. And then rather than a flood of anxiety hormones, we begin to experience peace and courage and hope as they wash over us. Do not fear. Hear those words as if they come from the mouth of God. Do not fear and believe I am with you. Fear not. Let us pray together this litany that reminds us to not be afraid. When the wind is strong and the waves are high, remember the words of Jesus. Take heart, it is high. Do not be afraid. 
When our dreams come to nothing and we wonder what lies ahead, remember the words of Jesus. When those we love disappoint us or hurt us deeply, remember the words of Jesus. When we begin to question God's call or doubt God's love, remember the words of Jesus. When we've lost all hope and don't know where to turn, remember the words of Jesus. When our faith is stretched to the breaking point, remember the words of Jesus. Through deep waters, I will be with you, for I am the Lord's.